And so the word jubilee usually uh, brings up the idea of celebration and especially anniversaries. For example, it was just last year, about seven months uh, before her passing, that Queen Elizabeth celebrated a platinum jubilee uh, as uh, to celebrate her 70 years uh, reigning as Britain's monarch. And so jubilee, however, has a very different meaning uh, in the Bible. And so we're going to jump right in here at Leviticus 25, picking up with verse 8. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself, or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee, and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. And you might wonder with that that last verse, how are we going to eat what comes directly from the fields if we're not supposed to sow or reap in that year? And if we were to read the entirety of Leviticus 25, we would see that what God tells them is, in the years prior to the Jubilee, that there is going to be an abundance. There's going to be enough of of the crops that you're going to be able to store some back and you're not going to miss anything. You are not going to miss a meal, in other words. This is not about we're going to starve you for a year and help you appreciate the other 49 years. That's not what this is about. And how many times that, that word jubilee, he's saying it's a jubilee. It's a jubilee. They had a cycle of seven years, and every seventh year was a special Sabbath year. And so this is a case. You saw the math laid out there. This is seven jubilee, I mean seven Sabbath year cycles. So seven times seven is forty-nine. And then it's in that fiftieth year that we we get the Jubilee year. And so uh, we read then in verse uh, 23, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. And so you see here, God is reminding them Okay, He gives them very detailed instructions, if you were to read all this, about how the land is to revert back to the people that owned it previously. And, and what he's trying to get them to realize is, you may think what you have is yours, but it's not really yours. 
purpose of part of the purpose of the Jubilee year is for is for God to teach his people what you have, what you occupy, the fields that you tend, they really belong to me. I am the Lord your God. You may have bought it at some point, you may tend it with your hands, you may work it, but it really belongs to me. That what you have is really mine. He's saying you you're really foreigners in this land. And that that is no different for us, church. That he wants us to realize that we are foreigners in this land. Lord willing, uh, in about a month, and I'm sorry y'all, I pray literally that the voice holds out today. No guarantees. Stacy had to read for me in class this morning. Um, But... Uh, Lord willing, uh, in about a month, I'll be headed back to Honduras. Uh, I made that statement about this time last year, and then, of course, tested positive for COVID the day before I was supposed to uh, leave for Georgia and then on to uh, uh, to uh, San Pedro Sula. But, but nonetheless, uh, when I when I step foot off that plane, I realize real quick that I am a foreigner in that land. All right. Uh, when I'm going through customs and when I when I get to the baggage claim area uh, because at that point I am overwhelmed uh, I do not look like the people of that land uh, they look different than I do they speak a different language than I do and so it's easy for me to understand when I after I get off that plane that that I am a foreigner in that land. And I'm grateful that there are people in our, our mission team that are going to uh, speak, uh, speak, you know, Spanish. Uh, I am not among them. I, I know a few little phrases here and there. You know, I can get to the bathroom and things like that. Uh, hopefully it won't be out of order. But nonetheless, um, but... God is saying, even though this is the land I gave to your ancestors, you need to realize that this world is not your home and that you're still a foreigner in this land. Think of yourself in that way and be willing to give it back. And so then we move a little further. Uh, I'm sorry, I've got lots of land pictures. Uh, Here we go. Verse 35, Um, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. 
then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt they must not be sold as slaves do not rule over them ruthlessly but fear your God and so you see here there's an element of forgiveness going on that debts are canceled and if people are having a tough time then those people are to be cared for you're supposed to look after people other than just yourself that's part of what Jubilee is if you remember last week we talked about uh, the parable of the unmerciful servant and we talked about how uh, in the ancient culture if someone had a debt they could not pay they would sell their children into slavery into to work off the debt for another family someone they borrowed from uh, so this is an example that if that's going on then you release them you release the slaves you say you know what the debt is canceled and you release the slaves the church family isn't that debt being canceled isn't that what we celebrated around this table this morning yeah the debt of our sin was canceled on the cross once and for all praise God as I sat there in my seat with that cup in front of me I was able to pray that prayer once again that said you know thank you Jesus for not letting that cup pass from you we know that he thought about it we know that he asked for it you know if, if it be your will let this cup pass from me but then he says but it's your will not my will and it's that reminder that others are more important than ourselves and that's what Jubilee was to teach the children of God is that hey we do this once every 50 years so that you'll know what it's like to be the recipient of a canceled debt or that you will know what it's like to practice giving yes it may be land that you've worked for years but now it's time to let it go back to the family that owned it before let it go back to where it was before if somebody needs money don't lend it with interest just like in the New Testament what are we told about lending to lend without expecting anything back somebody wants to borrow from you as a child of God and yes I'm saying this seriously as a child of God you lend it with the idea that okay I may see some of that again but I may not if you can't part with that money permanently without seeing a penny of it back then don't lend it because scripture tells us lend without expecting anything in return church family it's about generosity that is what is going on here all right I want to read from before we get to Luke 12 I want to read uh, from a blog that I found this week uh, we're about to read the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12 
and uh, I came across the Rich Fool blog. And he writes, uh, as Americans living in the greatest era of wealth creation in history, we've been conditioned to use our vast resources to improve our standard of living and build nest eggs that ensure the comfort, uh, a comfort that lasts a lifetime. Blessed with riches historically reserved for kings, we constantly search for new places to store our excess. Most personal finance advice today focuses on how to accumulate more and reach a state of financial independence. He says uh, that I didn't question this for most of my life, especially when I was still getting my financial footing. That at age 37, something unexpected happened. I felt financially secure for the first time. But the underlying philosophy that got me here eroded. I started to question the purpose of wealth accumulation and couldn't shake the nagging feeling that I had it all backward. That having more money should lead me to more gener to be more generous instead of more comfortable. It was a pivotal personal finance moment. Suddenly, my pursuit of the American dream felt like the modern-day equivalent of the rich fool tearing down his barns to build bigger ones. It was the beginning of a personal finance journey that eventually led me to start the Rich Fool blog, he writes. More than anything, this site serves as a diary for my own attempt to find that elusive balance between fiscal responsibility and radical generosity. Now, I love that term, radical generosity. Because when we do things that people don't understand, it causes them to ask questions, right? It causes them to say, okay, what is the motivation behind this? It's like when Jesus is teaching and says, if somebody asks you to go one mile, how far, church, are we supposed to go with them? Two, yeah. Why is that? Because when we go twice as far as someone asked us to go, then they're going to ask a question. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? I know what Chad Brewer's going to tell them why he did that. Right? Because you can, you can tell when he gets behind the microphone you can tell that his heart is swelling with the love of Jesus, right? Yeah. And so, when somebody says, Chad, why'd you do that? Isn't it an opportunity to say, because I have Jesus in my heart? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what it is. What? I'm sorry, excuse me. I asked you to go this far, and you went this far. Why did you do that? Well, see, I'm... I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm a Christian. And I, I try to follow as best I can the practices of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that if someone asks us for something, we should do that and even more. See, right there, it's built-in testimony. That's what it is, church. 
this morning in my class, I mentioned athletes. I love seeing athletes after the game. They, they grab them on the field and or on the court, whether they scored that winning three-pointer, whether they scored the winning touchdown, uh, hit the walk-off home run, or whatever it might be. I love the guys <laughs> or gals who the first thing they say is when that reporter says, you know, how did you do that or what was going through your mind when you were doing that? And they say, well, first of all, I want to give glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in that moment, what have they got in front of them? A TV camera and a microphone. And in that moment, where they could first and foremost talk about themselves, they know as a child of God that it's bigger than they are. And so they take that moment, they seize that moment to say, you know what? I don't know the next time or if ever again I'm going to have a camera and a microphone right in front of me. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to speak Jesus into this moment and into this space. And I love it when they do that. I absolutely love it when they take that moment where someone is trying to put them on a pedestal. And some of them, some of them preach little sermons and they say, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't have this gift, this athletic ability, if it wasn't for God. And in that moment, I'm sitting there in my big comfy papa chair going, yeah, way to go. What you just did is way bigger than what you did a few minutes ago. And I praise God that they get that in that moment. And so uh, the idea of uh, the, the guy who's behind the Rich Fool blog and he never identifies himself, I think that's interesting. Uh, but, but he's saying, you know what? Uh, you know, there's a difference between saving, responsibly saving for the future and amassing such a wealth that I become a hoarder of what God has blessed me with. Let's jump in here at Luke chapter 12, uh, beginning with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. 
Oh, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And then, if you were to continue reading on from there, because it doesn't stop there, verse 22, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. And we know that's a well-known passage right there. It's also found in Matthew 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, Jesus is explaining that, hey, look at the flowers of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They don't have a care in the world. And doesn't my heavenly Father love you more than any of these? If he's going to take care of the flowers and the birds then you know, you ought to know, He's going to take care of you. He says, don't be worrying about all this stuff. And don't worry about tomorrow. Trust in God is the message here. It's just like the Israelites in the desert were taught going through Exodus on Wednesday nights and uh, the Israelites in the desert when they didn't have any food to eat. And God gave them manna in the morning and quail in the evening. And they were given specific instructions. You know, don't gather more than you need. And some people, what they do? They went out and gathered more than they need. And then the next morning, they looked at it, and it wasn't fit to eat. It was spoiled. It was ruined. Because God is trying to teach them, trust me. If I say it's going to be there for you, it's going to be there for you. They had to go out and do the work. They had to go gather it. But he's saying, trust me, if I say it's going to be there, six days of the week it's going to be there. And then to prepare for the Sabbath, there would be extra. And so that was the one day they could gather a double portion to get them through the Sabbath day of rest. And so it's no different than in the year of Jubilee. I'm going to give to you, and then in that 50th year, you're not going to harvest the crops. You're going to let the land rest. Don't sow and don't reap, but in the years prior, there's going to be an abundance. And it's going to get you through that 50th year, that Jubilee. God wants us to trust Him. He's saying, yeah, store up and save. Save for your retirement. That's fiscally responsible. But don't save to the point that you're not giving. Don't save to the point that you're not taking care of the people around you who have a genuine need. And that brings us then to 2 Corinthians 9 as we prepare to close out our time together. Second Corinthians 9 beginning with verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And I love how he points out. Yeah, he he says, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, but he goes on to remind them. Goes on to remind those folks in Corinth and reminding us today, of course, that God is going to give you enough so that you can give to someone else. God is going to give you enough so that you can give back to Him. And then, in this last next part I want to read, this is why He is, is helping them understand. This, this is why it matters. This is going to be the fruit of generosity. Verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. It's another example, church, that when you go beyond, when you are generous, when you say, I could give this much, but you know what? Man, I want to give them even more. I want to help them out. It's in that moment that God is glorified, right? It's in that moment Paul is writing here that he says that generosity gets noticed. And when generosity gets noticed by children of God, generosity that comes from children of God, then who gets the glory? Not the person who's generous. That's not what he concludes there. He's saying it's God that gets the glory. It's the church family. We are encouraged not to be people who look after ourselves and become so self-absorbed that we don't look after the needs of others, that we don't give back a portion of what God has given us. God loves a cheerful giver. I remember when I owned a small business, a small business that I'd known for very long because uh, I wasn't very good at it or the time wasn't right. The product was too expensive for the place where I live. There's a lot of reasons I could give you for why I was a business owner for all of like three years of my life. But I bought a business when I was 27, locked the door for the final time right after my 30th birthday. And man, was that a life lesson right there. 
And I remember though, you know, thinking to myself that, you know, God in that moment, with a lot of uncertainty ahead of me, and an infant child at home, uh, because Barrett was less than a year old when this was going on, when the amount of stress that I had been under for months had wreaked havoc physically on my body, that I learned in all that to trust God. And I learned in all that that you know there were going to be better days ahead. And I appreciate the people who helped me out. The people who spoke kindness into my life. The banker who said, hey, don't you worry about this. Any anxiety that you're feeling personally, let it go because this is just business. And I appreciate all the people who encouraged me and supported me. The people who employed me after that. wasn't what I was accustomed to making. And it was not easy to make that transition of being your own boss and then having a boss. Some of you know what that feels like. But I just remember God blessing me and us never missing a meal. Us going through some thin times after that. But that God was always present. And so shame on me if I'm not willing at a time when I have extra that I'm not willing to share it with others and give back to God. Church family, we're called to be people who go the extra mile. We're called to be people who realize that it's not ours. It's God's. And therefore, when we're giving, we're simply giving what God owns in the first place. And that we are called to be people who are generous. Why? Because that generosity will glorify God. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet taken hold of the opportunity to put on Christ in baptism, we give you that opportunity today. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And when we sing that song, you'll have the opportunity to come forward and make a very simple confession that I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you're with us this morning and you've got something weighing on you that you would appreciate the prayers of the members of this body of Christ, then we offer the invitation for that reason as well. Let's stand together and sing.